It is my belief that they are turning the enterprise into a gigantic deep freeze. I don't know how to destroy it, but its destruction is imperative. If the unit will be activated, by the time they hear this, it will be too late. Vegetable Dex, welcome to a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents. Why am I talking so fast? I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I feel like I've been somehow stimulated too. I'm ready to get going on this episode of Star Trek. Well, that's weird, Steve, because to me, you're moving very slowly. Wow. What what an episode this is going to be of Enterprise Incidents, because we are going deep into Wink of an Eye, an episode I've, I've really always enjoyed, even over the years, now that I've really had time to scrutinize it, especially while rewatching it for Enterprise Incidents, and I'm sure during our conversation, you know, there are parts that are going to be great. There are parts that are just not going to hold up under scrutiny, but I still like it. Steve, how do you feel about Wink of an Eye? Well, this is, you know, there have been so many episodes that have gotten so much better on my rewatch, and in particular, season three, which has gotten such a bad rap. And I'm going like, man, the batting average for season three is really much higher than I thought. There are a few episodes that have definitely gotten worse. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this is this is one of them. I always liked it. It was always kind of fun. And now that if, but it was also fun when I was maybe doing something else and not quite paying close attention. Now that I'm paying close attention, I'm like, wait, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. There, there are definitely things about Wink of an Eye. And, you know, we'll get into this during the deep dive portion of the conversation here. But there are definitely things about it when you say like, well, wait, like hey, if they're moving that fast that – that the, the others in regular time can't see them, then you must be spending a whole lot of time in the acceleration mode before anything happens in the real world. But that's a whole other part of the conversation that we're definitely going to get into. In the meantime, Wink of an Eye was the second episode directed by Judd Taylor, his second of five TOS episodes. The story for Wink of an Eye was written by one of our favorite writers, Steve, Gene Kuhn came oh. the story. Yes, Gene Kuhn came up with the story, but you might not notice that while watching the episode because that's where he is credited as Lee Cronin. And the reason for that is because Kuhn was, by that time, he was under contract with Universal where he was writing and producing the series It Takes a Thief. And if he was still doing work for Paramount and Star Trek, it would have been a major conflict of interest. So that is why he proceeded to get into season three of the original Star Trek by using his his uh, his pseudonym, Lee Cronin. And Wink of an Eye was the third of six assignments given to Gene Kuhn by none other than Roddenberry himself. I got to say, just thinking about that, the more I think about this Gene Kuhn, Lee Cronin situation – the weirder it becomes. Why? Because first of all, well, he left the show. We heard that he was burnt out. He was exhausted. He had been working such crazy long hours. Now he goes over to another show where he's the producer. He must be working ridiculously long hours there. Yep. And he has time to write six episodes of Star Trek. Like that's crazy to me. That That is so much work. And I go, I don't know. I know we've heard that maybe there were some amphetamines in his life or something, but, <laughs> but like, I don't know. A, I don't know how he does it. And B, 
this is he's obviously breaking his contract on it takes a thief in order to do this thing. I mean, this is a really it is an underhanded thing to be secretly writing for another show when you're contracted to write one show. And I'm assuming all TV shows are under time pressure and schedule pressure. And like it's, it's a weird situation. Uh, it is definitely a weird situation. And Steve, you are very observant to point out that this is a weird situation. And on one hand, you may just look at this on the surface and say, wow, Gene Kuhn must have really loved Star Trek to continue writing for it under the radar using a different name while he was writing and producing a whole other series. But part of the circumstance, part of the deal that was made in order for him to leave Star Trek as the day-to-day producer midway through the second season was that he would continue to write scripts for Star Trek into the third season. So he was, they they made a deal with him. I don't know if it was ever in writing. I'm guessing it wasn't because of the, because of the conflict with Universal and It Takes a Thief, but that was the deal. And so when Roddenberry, who definitely took a step back in season three because of the whole time change, he still did assign stories and he assigned six to Gene Kuhn. Now, Gene Kuhn did not do all six of those stories because, uh, you know, he did Wink of an Eye was his third. And he also did, of course, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which was also just a story by credit. But after that, I, I, I think he stopped at four because he was so burned out and so yeah. busy doing It Takes a Thief. And yeah, I mean, the look, I mean, on one hand, we know that Kuhn was burned out producing Star Trek in its second season, but we also know after our, our conversations and our, especially our conversation with David Gerald that there was a sort of butting of the heads between Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry. So there were a lot of reasons why he did leave. So, so, but also, you know, the, the, the stories that Gene Kuhn wrote for the third season, no way are they going to be as good as the ones that he wrote for the first and the second season. Right. Because in the first and the second season, Kuhn was also the producer of the show. Now, you know, he's not involved in the day-to-day of Star Trek. So the work that he's doing is not going to be as good in season three as it was in season one and season two. So there's that. But yeah. <laughs> so the episode aired, Wink of an Eye aired on November 29th, 1968. It was the 66th episode to air. It was filmed between September 18th and 25th, 1968, and it was filmed on schedule, making it the 69th episode to film. And after an episode like For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky went way over budget, this one went way under budget. The total cost from Wink of an Eye was around $163,000, which brought it about $15,000 under budget. Wow. So for the most part, I mean, look, this is a bottle show other than, you know, the scenes on Scouse during the teaser. And also the score was tracked. They didn't have to pay for a new score. Uh, you know, there's some cover use of the camera and, you know, visual effects with the slow phaser beam and so on. But um, if this does look like it was a, a cheaper episode to film. Now, while while Gene Kuhn wrote the story for Wink of an Eye, the teleplay was handed off to Arthur Heineman. Arthur Heineman, this was his first of three Star Trek teleplays to write. The other two were The Way to Eden and The Savage Curtain. <laughs> uh, My favorites. Yes, uh, big time episodes, especially the way to Eden. So, but Heinemann has a really interesting career because back in the 40s, 
He was a layout artist for Disney and actually has a credit as a story developer for the animated classic Fantasia, which is Hmm. amazing. He was nominated for two Daytime Emmy Awards, both of them for ABC After School Specials. You ever watch any of those, Steve, those ABC After School Specials? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I I watched them, but I couldn't remember any of them uh, off the top of my head. Um, But he also wrote for shows like The Virginian, Bonanza, and he wrote 15 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. Now, knowing that our friend Ralph Sinetsky directed a bunch of episodes of Little House on the Prairie. I went on to IMDb and I did like a match name where you could see. Mm, right. And I, I put in Arthur Heineman, I put in Ralph Sinetsky and it didn't show anything. But Ralph, if you're listening, if you did any episodes with Arthur Heineman, please let us know because you've always been great about uh, providing comments on our Facebook page. So Gene Kuhn wrote his story outline, Steve, on March 11th, 1968. Heineman did his first draft teleplay on August 22nd. Uh, 27th, rather. He did a second draft on September 2nd. Arthur Singer did his rewrite final draft on September 10th. And Freiberger, Freddie Freiberger, did his script polish, his revised final draft on September 12th. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world? When Let's it was filming? hear it. Just, just, just say it nice and slow. I'll be very <laughs> slow. Um, uh, we are coming up when this is being filmed on the Summer Olympic Games in Mexico City, and they had a new plan, which was rather than do it the old way they did the Olympic Games, is that they wanted to simulcast all over the world, including into Western Europe. And so they said, hey, let's put up a big satellite. So they decide to launch the Interstellar 3, also known as the Atlantic 3. This is the largest communication satellite ever built. It's loaded onto a Delta M rocket and 20 seconds after launch, the whole thing blows up. Whoa. Yeah. So uh, there was a quick scramble of like, how are we going to deal with the Olympic Games? At this, <laughs> on the same day that this explosion happened, a Soviet rocket known as the Zone 5 orbited the moon. And I think that's just such a clear example of what it was like in the middle of the space race and how important these things were. Um, San Francisco State University created the first Black Studies program on September 19th. You know, we've been tracking this conflict in Czechoslovakia and that the Soviet army had invaded Czechoslovakia. Well, now the Soviet Union begins purging members of the Czech Communist Party. And again, I won't list them, but I was shocked to see in this week alone, there are three more hijackings. Unbelievable. All these hijackings in the late 60s. Wow. It just sounds really terrifying. Yeah. Um, And it's also, hey, welcome to the fall TV premiere season. We're getting a whole bunch of new shows, including this week, Adam 12 premiered. Mary Mayberry RFD premiered. Here is Lucy, the third, I think, Lucille Ball show premiered. This one didn't do very well. The Mod Squad. And then on Sunday, guess what show premiered that is still on the air to this day? Uh, on Sunday, guess what show premiered? Is it a soap opera? No, no. This is a news Oh, magazine. 60 Minutes. It was the premiere of 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes premiere. That is amazing. Yes. Oh, and by the way, so so you're saying, uh, so this is the week of September 18th to the 25th, right? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what happened on September 20th? Hmm. Uh, I'm assuming it's a Beatles thing. Uh, I don't uh, know. What no, it, it is not a Beatles thing. Oh, okay. it, it is the day that season three of Star Trek premiered with Spock's brain. Wow. So so the day after Spock's brain premiered, 
some of the cast and crew expressed uh, uh, reservations about it. Some of them were happy with it. Um, but what's interesting about when season three of Star Trek premiered on NBC TV at 10 p.m. in its new time slot, it won its time slot with a whopping 36% audience share. Can you imagine wow. a television show today getting a 36%? No, that's, it, I mean, the numbers are so far beyond anything we would ever, that would be the biggest hit of the year, like yeah, sure. today. Exactly. Um, Spots brain. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, shall we jump into Week of an Eye? Let's do it. So uh, one thing I have a, a question about, and maybe we'll find it out more later. I'm wondering if there was some re-editing in this episode, if things might have been rearranged or repurposed. Okay. Uh, the answer to that is yes. Okay. Because uh, I'll tell you what my first clue was is that we start off with a log from Scotty, and it seems strange to me that we're also seeing Scotty on the bridge talking, and that seemed very bizarre to hear a log and see him talking at the same time. Well, first of all, that is the observation that tipped you off, that that portion of the teaser for Wink of an Eye was lifted from another episode. For me, the tip-off was Scotty's hair, which was slicked back because by this point in the production he he had sported a new hairstyle was kind of a buzz cut but for the beginning of wink of an eye while kirk and the landing party are on scalus and you see scotty on the bridge talking into the chair uh and his his voice is not matching you know the ship's log so that scene was actually lifted from the empath oh okay all right, that's that's so interesting. Um, and what we hear is that what we thought was an uninhabited planet called Scalos, and that a landing party has gone down to investigate some kind of distress signal, and we see Kirk just standing three feet in front of a terrible backdrop with a with a red guy standing behind him, and it just looks so cheap. Yeah, well, the the uh, backdrop that you see in the original version, not the remaster version with the new visual effects, mm. the backdrop that Kirk and uh, se- the security guard, Mr. Lemley, are standing in front of is actually the same map painting that was used as a mini R7 for A Taste of Armageddon. Oh. So, Steve, I know how much you love when they figure out ways to save money. And, uh, you know, I already told you what the budget was and that they saved more than $15,000 on this episode. This was one of the ways they did it by uh, reusing that matte painting from A Taste of Armageddon. Well, it's, it's so funny because it's just such an example of what Jerry Finnerman does and what Good Direction does is that I, I'm sure I wouldn't have bounced on it and taste of armageddon but it's because it's so flat and he's so close to it and it just yeah. looks like he's standing in front of a backdrop he's he's know? standing in front of what it what it was is a, a rear projection they were mm. standing in front of a black screen and then the uh the uh map painting of Aminiar 7 was 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 gotcha. rear projected and that's what they're actually standing in front of the, the other thing i noticed by the way is his sleeve is in the foreground and you can really see the the gold sort of thread just looks frayed you know like a part of that is high def is that you can see like, oh, this cost of wardrobe is getting a little bit worn out here. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> Kirk's Enterprise. What do your senses read? They register something, sir, but I'm blessed if I can figure out what it is. We'll hear this a lot, that there's, we're reading something, but we can't get a fix. Maybe it's a malfunction. And yeah, so Hura is the our location exactly where this distress call came from and she goes yeah you're right there i am still receiving visual contact i can see them but i can't see you check coordinates is it the same area coordinates correspond captain this is the first thing that makes no sense 
because is the video repeating? See, that's that's the first thing is if if they're getting a distress call, is it a pre-recorded distress call? It has to be. Or is it in real time? And it can't be in real time because they're accelerated and it, it has to be uh, pre-recorded because the the recording you know must have been done before they they got sped up and disappeared completely well uh, or they recorded it and slowed it down right but either way it's recorded i mean right. obviously it's recorded well and so i go like if you had a recorded this has gone on for a couple of hours it must have looped right you exactly. know what i mean and so and yet the crew of the enterprise is too dumb to figure out that this is a tape they just keep going well they're not here i can't find them it's like I think we've been recording videos for a really long time, guys. You should have figured this one out. That listen, also, Steve, by this point in the third season, you know, they were they were past the halfway point and they were also under the gun because they were waiting for NBC to give them the order for the for the rest of the season. Because mm. they initially just had an order of like 16 episodes, and then you know, do we get the back? Uh, are we gonna are we gonna do a full 26? Uh, there was an option, maybe they're only gonna do 24. So there was a lot of waiting around, and mm. uh, but but that's that that happened on season one and season two with, right. with Rodberry and with Gene Kuhn as well. So uh, we we hear that there's no life forms on this planet, barely any vegetation, but we hear this buzzing. But there is an insect life. But the tricorder is not recognizing it. And Spock talks a little bit about the civilization that used to be there and that they're humanoid. And I like the fact that he looked at paintings and sculptures to make him realize that these are humanoid people that used to live here. And the other thing we see is that McCoy is standing in front of this beautiful fountain. Okay, so so first of all, the fountain that was built for Wink of an Eye was, of course, designed by Matt Jeffries, the world-famous Matt Jeffries, who designed everything for the original series, including the Enterprise, the Romulan Bird of Prey, and the Klingon warship. But uh, the thing that really stuck out to me, Steve, during my rewatch, and especially over the years, is that when Kirk is asking for a report from Spock, Spock, or rather Leonard Nimoy, doesn't seem to be looking directly at William Shatner. Hmm. His eye line doesn't match with Shatner. And I think the camera is tilted and angled in such a way that it, it doesn't look like it. But to me, it does look like he's he's actually reading from cue cards. I mean, I don't know if he is, but oh. the way that Nimoy's delivery of this uh, explanation of, you know, Scalus and like the civilization that was here is so, so bland and so like stiff, like I feel like maybe he is reading off a cue card. The other thing is that the the, the dialogue, the uh, conversation between Shatner and Nimoy had to be looped because the fountain had uh. running water and the running water was interfering with the dialogue. So they had to re-record it later. Well, and the other thing, of course, about that fountain that in addition to messing up the sound is we see this red guy standing, taking some kind of water s- samples there. He's taking water samples, and then as McCoy has kind of his back to him, at one point you see this red shirt. Uh, his name's Compton. You see him uh, sort of wash his hands and put his hands after they have been in the water on his lips, like he's just kind of like you know moistening his lips with the water from the fountain. And that was a very very bad idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And while 
Kirk is giving some instructions on what they're going to do next. We're looking at McCoy, who turns and sees this guy, Compton, just disappear. Compton. What happened? McCoy, I mean, this is actually a chilling moment. I was looking at him. I was looking right at him, and he, and he just wasn't there. And that's the sting to the trailer. I, I mean, even though, like you pointed out, Steve, that... Like if there's a distress signal, it has to be pre-recorded. So like why would a whore think that, well, you're there and they're not, they should be there, but they're not. But regardless of that, I still think it's a it's an interesting teaser. And also uh one of the earlier versions of the teleplay or even the outline, in the teaser, McCoy was supposed to be watching a flower sprout, bid, bloom, and die all in, in a in a mm. moment. Uh, you know, where they, where they, you know, how you see those like old. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do time lapse. Time lapse. But that proved to be A, too costly and B, too time consuming. And there was also a moment in one of the earlier versions of the story where a red shirt, probably Compton, because he, you know, doesn't have a good day in this episode, uh, is thrown against the wall and his head is crushed by an unseen force. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> Pretty violent, but that was removed because it would have made the Skolosians look like murderers. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we come back in Act 1. We're on the bridge. We're asked to replay that distress call. And we also hear, one, that Spock is down with McCoy doing tests in the lab. And two, we start hearing that there's all sorts of malfunctions going on around the ship. Captain, there's some trouble on the hangar deck. The controls are frozen. Have a repair crew's been assigned? Yes, sir. And now we play that tape, which obviously you and I figured out was a recording ahead of time. Yep. They're just figuring <laughs> it out now. To any and all space travelers passing within range of the planet Scalos, I send you an urgent appeal for help. And what we hear is that there are only five people left out of a civilization of 900,000. So what did you think of those five Scalosians standing there? What did you think of their wardrobe, Steve? Um, I'm guessing it was reused from something else, and I don't know what. Uh, I don't know if it was reused, but I, I, I didn't really like the wardrobe no, I don't. that the aliens were wearing. It looked very lost in space to me. But also, it's worth noting that Andrea Weaver, who was the woman's customer for 39 episodes of Star Trek, this was her last episode that she did mm. as part of Bill Tice's staff. And also, so you are on a planet in another quadrant of the galaxy that was set up in the beginning of the first teaser, right? So they get this distress call from aliens who are human and speak perfect English. Right. So now look, I get it. It's Star Trek. But, you know, at least with the, uh, the Kelvins and by any other name, they said that they actually looked very different and they adapted to human form to be able to operate right. the Enterprise. But Gene Roddenberry sent – Fred Freiberger, a memo after he saw footage from this episode. And he said, Fred, are you getting a little tired of seeing human beings every week? I am. We need a planet where everyone is bald, where they don't have eyebrows or something. We need some change. Uh, we need to change also the voice patterns, the habits, social custom, make aliens look and feel like aliens. I think it's true. And well, the other one that I think of is so, you know, spoiler alert, these people move so fast we can't see them. We'll get into that when we get there. But but I also go, 
I mean, part of the conceit of Star Trek is that we have this universal translator. And so they're not actually always speaking English. We're just hearing everything in English because of this magical device, you know, that they have. Well, if we're accelerated up to 10,000 times the speed or whatever it is, that device probably isn't working. Um, uh, But, you know, it is. It's Star Trek. This is what it is. We're not going to spend all our time translating aliens. And so we just have this conceit. So finally, they figure out that this thing was pre-recorded and that we couldn't find them. We can't find Compton. It would seem that some force or agent only partially discernible to our instruments may have been responsible. There's one weird moment that isn't important at all. When they cut to Sulu, he's wiping his nose. Yeah, he's he's like wiping his like uh, uh, under his nose. Like maybe he's like sweating, like he's nervous. It's just a thing you would never put in a show. Like, why would you cut to that moment unless it was about something? Like, in general, we want our characters to look good. It's just a weird, it's just weird. Yeah, it's a weird cut. But, you know, that's when you hear uh, that the deflectors are inoperative. The controls are frozen. The ship is on standby alert, which is something I never heard before. And uh, uh, they- <laughs> I like that stand- standby alert. It's like, hey, Scott, don't freak out. <laughs> but I want you to be worried about something, but not really worried, but, you know, kind of be ready to be worried. Be yeah, ready get, to be worried. Get ready. Don't worry yet. Don't worry. Stand by because I'll tell you when it's time to worry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It's a very strange thing. Uh, and we hear, again, things are continuing to break down. And then we get a call from Bones and Sickbay requesting Kirk's presence. Get out of the way, Bones. Your orders, Jim. You're the last one. What do you read so far? Can we discuss it here? On my way. Which, again, is like, if he's not going to answer, why ask the question? And there isn't actually any information that McCoy has that he couldn't say over the... That's a thing you say if there's something serious, you know? It's not a thing you say when we have no information. Right. Anyway, not a big <laughs> deal, but we get, to, we get to sickbay. Tell the captain what you told me. Something's going on, captain. Somebody's opened all the medical supply cabinets. Anything missing? Just disordered. As though someone had picked up everything and examined it. Thank you. Okay, here's my first thing. Again, they're moving so fast nobody can see them. But you would see things move around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or even just go like, you know, something would in- instantly shift from here to there, even if you didn't see the person who did it. So but the other thing is, like, what's to say that you're moving so fast that the the crew can't see you like they're yeah. they're basically they look like they're frozen. So let's say you go through the cabinets and you're picking stuff up and checking stuff out or, you know, trying to see what's there or whatever. By the time. The crew actually made their way. Like, let's say Chapel made her way over to the cabinet and noticed that stuff had been moved around. In Chapel's timeline, it would have just taken just a few seconds or a minute or so. In the timeline of the Scalosians with their accelerated uh, pace, that could have happened months. Well, this is the problem with the. There's, I mean, like the, and it's so. So I'll tell. Here's <laughs> what occurred to me. I actually have a memory of the first time my particular geek brain bumped on some science fiction stuff. And here's what it is. I am assuming, I am 100% certain that you watched The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, of course I did. <laughs> okay. Because this was like great, you know, superhero science fiction sure. stuff for us in the mid-70s. So Steve Austin, a man barely alive, who was rebuilt, uh-huh. he had two bionic legs, one bionic arm and one bionic eye. And there were many, many times in the show where he was handcuffed and he would look down and he would pull his two hands apart, breaking the handcuffs in slow motion. In slow motion. And my seven years old or eight years old, I remember watching and going, wait a minute. If you have one super strong arm and one regular arm and you pulled 
the super strong arm would just drag the other arm around. Right. It couldn't, it probably would injure yourself. You couldn't actually break handcuffs because the weak arm would never be strong enough to hold up against it. And I have, just have such a strong memory of going, this doesn't make sense. Yep. <laughs> well, this whole episode, it's just the whole conceit doesn't make sense. I agree. And, it could, and like, because what happens when you stand still? I mean, he stands talking to Dila for a really, really long time. And if you stand still, you're still invisible. Like, yeah, the whole, yeah, it doesn't like if, make sense. If they're, you know, they're on the bridge and Kirk and Dila are talking and just standing there for, for a few minutes. And Uhura is, has turned around to talk to the captain. He's already disappeared to her. But if she's looking in that direction, wouldn't she at least see some kind of a, maybe a split second of, of wait, wait, I think I just saw Captain Kirk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, a bullet moves faster than I can see it, but eventually it stops and then I can see the bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, we trying to figure out what happened to Compton and then Kirk hears that same buzzing again. Could something be making me hallucinate? What do you mean? I mean that twice before something touched me and there was nothing there and it just happened again. What touched him? Just to be clear. I'm going to say it was Dila. It was Dila. You I said that she Dila. kissed kissed him. Right. Now, but, it, but she. But I think first of all that this was, you know, certainly something's going to happen on the bridge. That that's a little more than just him being touched. But I think it was Dila. Dila definitely yeah. has the hots for him. You know, she's she. He is the one that she has chosen. I agree. So if I'm moving so fast that you yeah. can't see me, yeah, and I kiss you, hmm. I would think that would hurt. And if it, because how would you, because you're moving at like a thousand miles an hour. And if it didn't hurt, then you must have slowed down enough so that I can see you. Yeah. Like if, when, if Dila like leans in to kiss him, uh, wouldn't she like sort of have like a sort of millisecond image, kind of like a, you know, like it, like remember in Fight Club when you saw exactly, uh, exactly. you saw like, wait, did I just see Brad Pitt? One um, frame, one yeah. frame, one frame of, of that. But again, you know what? You and I, could spend the next two hours nitpicking yes. apart the the whole concept of moving in accelerated time and and you know that would be it <laughs> but i actually think that shatner's performance here is pretty good could i be imagining it well, physically there's nothing wrong with you but am i hallucinating i say no and we did beam something aboard something has invaded the ship like it's actually a well-directed moment. Uh, the way he he deduces that we were invaded. We hear there's something going on in life support. We head down to a corridor. There's some red guys there. Spock hands Kirk a phaser. Oh yeah, this is another really good scene. They're heading down the corridor, and the red guys hit a force field. You think it's like a wall that they're trying to walk walk through, like a, you know, like the brig. And then as Kirk and Spock are, are walking towards them, they're still behind the security guards. Phasers on stone. Sweep the area. They fire, and there's this big green wall of phaser fire. And then Kirk and Spock walk ahead of the security guards, and there's no music. And as soon as the security guards start to move forward, they get hit by the force field again. So whatever is – this is not a wall – this is something is holding these two guys back, but wants Kirk and Spock to walk through. And I think that's another really well done scene. 
I I agree. I don't quite understand why they're doing it, but I agree that it, it, they did it in a, a good way. Yeah. Uh, we go into life support room. We see this device hooked up to life support. Life support is still operating. I would say that the installation is incomplete. Disconnect it. And we touch it and get what looks like a shock. Destroy it. And they hold out their phasers, which disappear. And then something pushes them back. There was no force field. Something shoved me back. They're in here. And again, oh. great scene. And I, I could say why it doesn't make sense because of the fast speed, but okay. We've already done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to do it more. I yeah, won't do it are. all the time, but there's more. It seems that we may look at it, Captain, but that is all. A show of strength. Yes, evidently they're convinced that we can do nothing to stop them. And they wish to impress upon us what they can do to us. We're back on the bridge, and then we have what I think is, A, a completely useless and also bad scene of them asking the computer, telling all the computer what they know, asking for the computer's advice, and the computer doesn't have any advice. And it's like, A, the scene's useless, and B, this is exactly where you should have a McCoy arguing with Spock scene or a Scott. Like, if we're going to go over our exposition, let's have an argument about it. Let's not just have the computer repeat everything we already know. I agree with you, but what I do like about the scene is the way that it just establishes Kirk in command doing whatever it takes to save the Enterprise and protect its crew because when they ask the computer, when Spock says to the computer, hey, what do you think we should do? I mean, he doesn't say that, but you know what I mean. And the computer says, if incapable of resistance, negotiate for terms. And then Kirk just looks at Spock and says, we will not negotiate. You can go. Absolutely, we're not going to surrender. So I actually think that that moment is pretty good. I don't. And the reason is, is because, uh-huh. yes, I think Shatner's great. I think the line is great, but obviously they're not going to negotiate. Did you ever think that they were going to negotiate? Well, of course not. But yeah. just the way that the way that he says it, he's like, are you kidding? No, we're not going to negotiate like that. Like that's that's even an option. Of course not. My recommendation, make them take the next step. I mean, I would actually think that Kirk would be going like, there's a device on life support. You know, we have to find a way to get that thing off. I don't think they would actually would just do nothing, but that's what he says to do. And then we hear the buzzing, but we also hear some romantic music, which I think takes us way back to the first season. Yes, uh, we, we, we definitely hear uh, Kirk is sitting in the chair. He has his coffee. He, had, he did not drink it yet, but by the motion of Kirk, of Shatner, his uh his his biofeedback his body language it's like he feels somebody touch his hair and then he puts his hands up to his lips which clearly indicate someone or something has kissed him and at that moment you know you're hearing you're hearing this uh this romantic music which is actually lifted way back from From the the cage cage. exactly that's uh, alexander courage's music cue right there that's when kirk picks up his coffee, he drinks it, he makes a face like, God, this coffee tastes bad. And that's when he starts to look around. And I think that this is a really cool-looking scene, the way he looks at Spock, and Spock is moving very slowly. He looks at Scotty, Scotty's moving very slowly. And you hear that, again, another music cue. This one's lifted from the man trap. Uh, you know, while they're on the planet uh, searching for Dr. Crater and everything like that. Uh, yeah, all the music is lifted from other episodes. You can see the camera tilt 
because from this point forward, all of the scenes that are shot in real time are, 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 you know, framed the way they've always been framed. But if there's a scene that is taking place in the accelerated time, the camera is tilted slightly. So I think that's actually a really cool effect to differentiate between real time and accelerated time. And also, I'm sure as you know, and everyone listening knows that the tilted camera technique was also used very effectively in the Batman TV series, which was running in conjunction at the Mm. same time with the original Star Trek. Every time they were in the lair of one of the villains, the camera would be tilted. So I don't know if they got that idea from Batman to do this effect, but this was happening at the same time. So who knows? Yeah, I, I think it works great. I mean, tilted angles go back to the very beginning of cinema, but but yes, it, it, I think it diff- it looks really cool. It differentiates the space in a really interesting way. I think the slow-mo is done in a really interesting way, and it is really, really slow. So I don't know how many... So just if you're going to shoot slow motion, what you do is you speed up the film as you're filming it. So instead of 24 frames per second, you film it at 48 frames so that when you play it back, it's half as fast. So this, they must have been shooting it a couple hundred frames a second. I mean, it, it looks really, really slow. Um, and I think the actors are being slow as well. And it's handled really well as Kirk is trying to figure out what's going on. And then we hear... Captain. And there standing is a beautiful woman, Dila. Dila. So she, first, I think it's interesting. <laughs> of course. So, so at first, when Kirk realizes that there's a beautiful woman in front of him, what does he do? Uh, I don't remember. He smiles. Yeah. Yeah. At first, his, like, his knee-jerk instinctive reaction is to smile. But then he is like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who is this person? But then he, then he gets all captain-y. Do you mind explaining? She kisses him passionately. Who are you? Dila. The enemy. Like, cut to the chase. Like, she's not trying to hide anything. Dila is played by Kathy Brown, whose name when she was born, her born name is Jacqueline Sue Brown. Now, I don't get into like who they're married to unless it's interesting, unless it's somebody famous. In this case, Kathy Brown's second husband was Darren McGavin, who was on, you know, Kolchak the Night Stalker. uh, And they were married from 1969 to her death in 2003. She was on TV. On Wagon Train, Have Gun, Will Travel, written by Roddenberry, Sea Hunt, Rawhide, 77 Sunset Strip, Bonanza. Of course, everybody was on Bonanza. The Love Boat. And if you're going to do The Love Boat, you got to do Fantasy Island, too. Naturally. You're the enemy? Yes. You beamed me aboard yourself when you came up. So I don't think that makes any sense either. How did they beam them aboard, you know? They, yeah, they, it like, doesn't. How long does that transporter process take? Uh, well, and, and how do they beam them up and nobody saw it? Yeah, uh, what? <laughs> it doesn't. Well, yeah, and it's like because you have to decide to beam a person aboard, which means you have to see them. Like the computer has to deconstruct them and reconstruct them, and it can't even find them. So none of none of that makes sense. I mean, in in the teleplay, it must be written in all capital letters: "Suspend your disbelief." Yeah. <laughs> what have you done with my man? Nothing. Nothing. And. He looks over at Spock and Scotty and says, This is nothing. There's really nothing wrong with them. They're just as they have always been. You were different. And, you know, at one point also in one of the earlier versions, in addition to all the, all the weird things that were happening, at one point the camera was supposed to cut to Sulu and he was supposed to be sitting there in his underwear because one of the Skolosians 
was sort of like checking him out to be a possible, you know, specimen like they're like they're looking at Kirk. So I'm glad that that was taken out. <laughs> and what she explains is that the, they can't see you because of the acceleration. And then she uses the title in a line. We move in the wink of an eye. And you hate um, that. <laughs> well, it's particularly if there's no reason for okay, actors should characters always should have a reason for why they're saying what they're saying. Yeah. There's no reason for her to say that other than let's get the title out there. Yeah. When the old guy says for the world is hollow because, and I have touched the sky, he's talking, he's trying to describe this revelatory experience. So it makes more sense for him to say the line. This one, it doesn't. But all that really matters is that you can see me and talk to me. We can go on from there. Why? Because I like you. Didn't you get or are you so accustomed to being kissed by invisible women? And she kisses him. I want to explain the difference between how young Steve reacted to this and how old man Steve reacts to this. Yes, let's Young Steve was like, hot girl in sexy outfit is into me. This is awesome. <laughs> old man Steve goes, man, this woman is crazy. Stay away from her. Like every alarm bell goes off. With this opening scene with Dila. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Like major danger signals. Is this why you sabotaged my ship? Oh, it has not been sabotaged. We we had to make some changes in it to adjust it to us. It has been sabotaged. That doesn't make sense. I don't understand what changes they've made. Yeah. Yeah. You said we. My chief scientist and his crew. I am their queen. You are going to be their king. (laughs) That's two episodes in short succession, uh, World is Hollow and this one, where it's love at first sight and someone out of nowhere says, "You're, g- I'm the queen, you're going to be the king. You know? well, well, in the case of For the World is Hollow, that love at first sight was a mutual attraction. Right. And I don't think that Dila is in love with Captain Kirk. I think that she is in lust with Captain Kirk because if they need like outsiders – who are not sterile to help them repopulate the species, then you know what? Captain Kirk is no slouch. Sure. Uh, and that is what that's, I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of the difference here is that there's no love involved, at least, at least not yet. What about my ship, my crew? You're accelerated far beyond their power to see. So they'll go on without you. Don't be so stubborn. You cannot go back to them ever. Well, at this point, he takes out his phaser. This won't kill you. But the stun effect is not very pleasant. So he sets his phaser on stun. He does it like real casually, not in a rush. And then he fires his phaser at her. This is actually a pretty cool scene. You see the phaser being come out of the phaser really slowly. You see her move out of the way. And the phaser beam hits the bulkhead. So even in accelerated time, if Kirk took out his phaser and the phaser beam is moving very slowly... Wouldn't Lieutenant Uhura see a phaser beam go right past her head into the wall and wonder what the heck was that? Yeah, no. And well, and maybe you did some damage to the wall. Right. You know, uh, absolutely. Again, doesn't make sense. But I agree with you. The effect is really cool. The effect Seeing is the cool. slow phaser is cool. The effect is cool. And that's when Dila takes out her weapon, the Skolosian weapon, and she fires it at Captain Kirk and the phaser just goes flying you never see it land anywhere which she says her weapon has stun and kill but apparently it also has weird telekinetic 
can move stuff around powers too. Yeah, for, for true. Like what setting was that on? Yeah. Uh, but the Skullation weapon, of course, also designed by Matt Jeffries, who designed the phaser uh, and the communicator, uh, made from Laffy turned aluminum and was six and three quarters inches long. You'll feel better about it all in a little while. It always happens this way. They are very upset at first and it wears off. And they, they learn to like it. So there's something about getting accelerated that's going to make you more pliable, agreeable, something like that. And it's a plot thread that doesn't quite succeed, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one other thing, by the way, the turbo lift door is open for the entire scene. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the crucial lines that were filmed and had to be cut because the episode was running long was a line from Scotty alerting Captain Kirk that all of the bulkhead doors were stuck open. Because otherwise, if a Skolosian in accelerated time uh. walks up to the door, Skolosian's going to have to wait an awfully long time for the door to open. So so they rake the Enterprise so all the doors will be stuck open. But regardless, if the turbo door, turbo lift is stuck open, you still have to get into the turbo lift ride it down and that's going to take forever if you're stuck in accelerated time i'm just you know well (laughs) let me ask you let me ask this question i know we're i'm I'm sorry that we're going to beat on this a bit how much faster than humans are they moving a thousand times faster ten thousand times faster a hundred thousand times faster it depends but it has to be fast enough that even when they are standing still for a long period of time in accelerated motion that that the people in real time can't see them. So, so I'd be curious if there was ever any scientific uh, sort of analysis done to determine how fast the Skolosians would have to move to be invisible to the eyes of the Enterprise crew. Because <clears throat> um, if it's a thousand or ten, I did some math and I don't have it in front of me, but it's it literally is like ten minutes would be weeks of mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, it's so far beyond. I mean, the, years would be going by while you're in the turbo lift if they're if you're a hundred thousand times faster. I wish they had said that the plot was you're in a parallel dimension that is occupying the exact same space as the Enterprise and identical, and you're just vibrating at a slightly different frequency, and that's why nobody can see you. Not yeah, exactly. you're moving super fast. So he heads down in the turbo lift, and she calls out, "He's on his way to you. Be gentle with him." And then at the moment that he's gone, Uhura turns around and sees that Kirk is gone. Lieutenant, did you see what happened? Well, he was sitting there, he just drunk his coffee, and he set the cup down. You see, it's still there. And Sulu verifies that that's what happened. And Kirk is running through the corridors past frozen guards and crew members. Captain Kirk, you've made it. Compton. Compton is played by Jeffrey Binney, who his career is uh, negligible, except for one, one film credit, Steve. Mm. And I'm willing to bet that you cover this movie on the cinephiles. It was 1982's Kung Fu Cannibals. We have not covered Kung Fu Cannibals. <laughs> I feel like we've really, yeah, we've got a long way to go. Very <laughs> important picture in cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I figured that, I figured that. So Kirk sees another Enterprise crew member in his accelerated time. He's like, oh, he's like, you can see that it's like relieved. Yeah. And he's immediately assumed 
that this red shirt is going to be like, you know, side with his captain and come to yeah. his rescue and help save the ship. But that is not what Compton says. At first I refused, but then after a while I found that I couldn't help myself. I met this girl. Of course, it all comes down to a woman. <laughs> and uh, he says, I showed her the operations of the ship. So this is another thing. He's a security guard. How does he know the whole operation of the ship? Well, it's it, is the them becoming more pliable connected to sex? Because what he says is I resisted and then I met this girl. I never met anyone like her. So is that part of what's is it? Is it the romantic thing that's going to turn people? Is that what's going on? Uh, I don't know if it's the romantic angle, but it could be a lust angle. Right. And then, you know, I mean, you know what Kirk's going to do. He does his regular, I agree with you, start to turn away and then sneak attack on Compton. Um, and he goes in and there is some guards in the life support room and they stun him and Kirk goes down in a very cool kind of slow motion fall. Yep. <laughs> and then Compton comes in, sees his hurt captain grabs the arm of one of the guys and Royale, one of the bad guys hits him and he goes down and we see that there is a cut on his neck. Bad news. That yeah. bet. So that cut is, is bad news. And so, but it's like Compton, he just betrayed the enterprise and you know, now he's like coming to the rescue of, of Captain Kirk. Was it like, were there like conditions? What was he told? Like, I promise you, we will not hurt anyone. If you help us, and now that they were looking like they were going to hurt Captain Kirk, maybe that's why he yeah. suddenly retaliated. Uh, but still, I mean, the fact that he betrayed his his uh, commanding officer and and his uniform and the crew of the Enterprise is not good. But there is cell damage, and Rael tells the the woman Scolosian, whose name we don't know, and she never says a word. Another will be secured for you. So that is Rael, played by Jason Evers whose claim to fame is the is the film The Brain That Wouldn't Die. He was also, okay. yeah, that was his claim to fame. But he was also, look, he was a very, very busy actor in the 60s. He was in uh, The Green Berets and into the 70s, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. On TV, he was on Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, of course, Bonanza, Big Valley, Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, and Mannix, among others. That's a pretty serious uh, career. Yeah, he did have a serious career, but after after the early 70s, it was on the decline. Gotcha. We're back on the bridge. Spock is analyzing the coffee cups. There is something that's different in Kirk's cup, maybe. By the way, for some <laughs> reason, what, when they're talking about this moment of whether or not what they drank is dangerous, my brain flashed to a movie that I know is one of your favorites. What was it we had for dinner tonight? Well, we had a choice, steak, fish. Yes, yes, I remember. I had lasagna. <laughs> Airplane. 1980, my friend. Yeah, I don't know, but that's where my brain went. Uh, and so uh, Scotty has the con, and Spock is going to go off to analyze the coffee. And then we cut back to life support where Dila says, I hate what happens to them when they're damaged. You're going to have to learn to control your temper, Rail. I do not want that to happen to this one. Now, we don't know what she means at this point. But we do know that she's trying to protect Captain Kirk. I want to keep this one a long time. He's pretty. Yeah, Dila, Dila, I have a very different reaction as a grown-up to Dila than I did as a kid. <laughs> yeah, she, um, you know what? If you, you know what, I never thought about that, Steve. But if as a grown-up, if like that happened to me now today, I would be like, this woman's a little crazy. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No. So someone who's that attracted to you that quickly and makes so many assumptions. And then when you're unconscious, you know, talking about your death and that you're, you know, wanted to keep him around a long time. He's pretty. This is not this is not a good situation. And Rael doesn't like this at all. You cannot allow yourself to feel an attachment to such. I can allow myself anything I want. So Dila is obsessed with Captain Kirk. Rael is obsessed with Dila. And that conflict, that triangle, was suggested by Bob Justman because Bob Justman, who was still at this point along the way with the development of Wink of an Eye, he was still the associate producer or co-producer of the show. And uh, even though he was definitely on his way out, had one foot out the door, but by this point, just everyone felt like, yeah, it's a pretty cool concept. This could be a lot of fun, but there's just not enough action and there mm. isn't because I, you know, I meant to tell you while we were discussing the scene between Dila and Kirk on the bridge that this episode is very talky. There's a lot of talking that goes on in this episode. Uh, and then Kirk wakes up. He asks, what is this device that's on the ship that we see? And they basically said, hey, you could do whatever you want. You can go check it out. I suggest you don't touch it. And naturally, what does Kirk do when someone tells him not to do something? He touches it. Yeah, it's a shock. <laughs> and then for no reason I can figure out at all, except I guess stubbornness, just grabs it with both hands, causing himself a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. And he he's, he touches it in such a way that he can't take his hands off of it. Yeah. But he finally does. His hands are numb. And Dila points out, look, your hands are almost frozen. So the unit, this uh, unit that's going to convert the Enterprise into a gigantic deep freeze appropriately, I mean, his hands are frozen, has a self-defense mechanism. So it, like, you know, like Spock pointed out, it seems we may look at it, but that's it. Like I said, I don't understand why Kirk grabbed it, but he did. And then he sees Compton and Compton is got gray hair and looks like a shriveled old man. And he is dead. He's dead. He's old. His cells were damaged. When that happens, uh, it causes the uh, victim to age rapidly. So Kirk kneels down. He's clearly upset about this. And this is a crewman who betrayed him. But still, he goes, He was so young. Now, what I like about this moment is this is the Kirk that we have come to know all throughout the five-year mission. The Kirk who agonizes over the death of each and every crewman. When he kneels down to the what should have been a dead body in Devil in the Dark, uh, agonizing one by one after each of the, the red shirts uh, get killed in the apple. I like that this thread of the compassion of just how personally he takes each and every casualty on his ship. Well, and this one in particular, because Rail lies to him and right. says that it was his fault, that mm. he, in fact he damaged Compton in their struggle when in fact it was Rayal who did it. And again, this never gets resolved. We never tell Kirk, hey, dude, you didn't actually kill Compton because right. right now he thinks that he killed him. Why did you lie to him? He did not damage that when you did. Perhaps he would be less violent now. I see no reason to make him feel any worse than he has to. Why do you care what he feels? And then we get into, again, it's very obvious that Rayal's jealous and that he doesn't like her fascination with Kirk. Species is capable of much affection. I have noted that. I wonder if they will demonstrate it to us. Which basically, she's talking about sex with Kirk, yep. you know? Yep, um, so be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> Rael, stop sulking. Accept it. We've had to accept it all our lives. 
I think that's a good line because it shows that there's something going on that we don't yet understand and something that prevents Rayal from having a relationship with Dila. And he goes and kisses her. And I think it's obvious that she enjoys the kiss to some degree, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he tries to kiss her again and he, she stops him and says, go back to work. And she exits and he is obviously pissed. We're in the lab and we see frozen Spock and Bones and Kirk is at a computer basically trying to explain everything that he knows that's going on. Uh, And as he's doing that, she walks in. Go ahead. You won't accomplish anything. Yeah, she actually helps him because she doesn't think that that Kirk could do anything to stop the scholarships. It's like the opposite of a villain monologuing. You know, is that she lets him monologue, essentially. And so he explains about the acceleration, about taking over the ship, about what happened to Compton. But when... And then she provides the word that he can't come up with. Damaged. Damaged. And this happens a couple of times that she helps him explain things. Device attached to the life support systems produces an extreme numbing core. It is my belief that they are turning the Enterprise into a gigantic deep freeze. I don't know how to destroy it, but its destruction is imperative. And she says, The unit will be activated. By the time they hear this, it will be too late. And the camera pushes in on him with a music sting, and that is the end of that too. Is it possible that that wasn't always the end of act two? Why do you say that? Because it a it's not the greatest act break in the world, and the push in is a, something you might do at, in an act break. But it see it seems, and we're going to come back right into the same spot. So I don't know. It, it seems a little odd to me. That's a good question. I I could not pick up on anything that could have indicated that there was a different act break or they moved something around. But yeah, I mean, as far as act breaks go, uh, it's a weaker one. But that goes to to my point that I made earlier, that there's just a lot of talking going on in yeah. this episode. You know, that Justin's, Justin's uh, uh, critique of the earlier versions of the story that they didn't have enough action was was accurate. Well, and you know what it is? is like cutting in in the middle of an action scene or a dramatic shift is one thing, but this is cutting in the middle of an expositional scene and coming right back to the middle of the same scene while we're talking about the same thing. Uh, which is what happens in Act 3. She compliments him on his power of reasoning. You were quite right in almost every assumption. Why are you doing this? And then what she explains is that their civilization was destroyed by volcanic eruptions and the water was polluted and there was some radiation and that's what accelerated them. But it's not just that they all got accelerated. All the men became sterile and almost all the women became uh, incapable of reproducing. And so their population has disappeared and the only way they can keep their civilization going is by kidnapping men to procreate with right right but but uh, when other ships came by when they tried this process before the enterprise swung by scouts it didn't work the people just burned out so this is the first time the scholars had any kind of success with accelerating an outside male who can help them reproduce Oh and yes, they they the, the dealer actually says you know we tried this before, but you know the the inhabitants of the other spaceships you know when we sped them up they burned out they they died. So you're the first one that that's actually worked with. What, so so it's funny that wasn't my perception, although that line is definitely there. 
But the perception I got, so you're saying that the destruction of Scalus happened in their lifetime, and there have been zero children since. It's kind of like Children of Men. Remember that movie, Children? Sure. Uh, so yeah. So, uh, but what happened? I mean, you know, who knows how long ago this this happened? Um, but for to go from a population of nine hundred thousand to to the five people, the five scolosians that we see, and they're all you know accelerated. And you know, as you and I pointed out many times already, and we just passed the halfway point, uh, they must have been living in this accelerated time for a very long time. You know the the men were sterile and they could not repopulate the species. And now they're down to just five people. So, so they need a perfect specimen like Kirk. And I guess they also thought that Compton was a perfect human specimen. See the impression I always had, and I have no evidence for this. Well, there's a tiny bit of evidence that is that they had succeeded in grabbing men and reproducing for many generations, just not, not very often. Right. So, so that this, in my mind, this wasn't the first generation since the disaster, this was the fifth generation or something like that. Because they do talk about, well, we'll get to it. What about the rest of my crew? They will remain here in suspended animation. It will do them no harm. So they're going to just have a bunch of frozen men that they can thaw out when they need to reproduce again? Yeah, basically. They're just going to keep them there on ice until they're, you know, ready, ready to, uh, you know, get that popsicle going. <laughs> Captain, we have the right to survive. Not by killing others. Oh, you would do exactly the same thing. And we get into an argument about Kirk's desire to fight to protect his crew and their desire to do this thing to protect their species, essentially. At first, Kirk's response to this seems very unKirkish because he says, your trouble is in you. So basically yeah. saying, hey, leave us alone. Like, where is the Kirk who says, we'll help you? We'll take, let's take your problem to the Federation. Well, that line is next, was when he tries to reason with Dila, basically saying, let's take your problem to the Federation. We'll figure out we'll, how to, we'll figure out how to fix this. And you can see that Kirk is trying to appeal to Dila, like the way he appealed to Rojan in Act One of By Any Other Name, where he goes, let's, let's take your problem to the Federation. You know, research has found, you know, hundreds of uh, plants that suitable for colonization. And he goes... We do not colonize. We conquer. We rule. Um, it's funny that you mentioned by any other name because that is the episode that I always associate with this episode. Yep. They're very, very similar um, in lots of ways. But this is also where he asks, well, have you tried anything else? And she says, We are handling it in the only way we know how. We, our parents did and their parents before them. That's why I think this is a multi-generational thing. That they have, they must have succeeded. Otherwise, they wouldn't have parents and their parents before them. Yeah, true. And then she touches her brooch uh, and talks to Rael on her little communicator, which reminds me of next generation communicators we're going to have. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just touch them and it beeps. Yep. Go to the transporter room, dealer. Signal me when you're there and beam down. And he grabs the disc that he's been working on and he puts it into the console in front of Spock and then he heads out. Captain's gone. We'll go after him, dealer. And now suddenly our, we're moving again in the lab and they've now discovered that, yes, it was water from Scalos that was in Jim's coffee and it wasn't in the other cups. Kirk is in the transporter room doing something under the console. Dila comes in uh, with her weapon drawn and says, Why did you run? I panicked. <laughs> Which obviously she doesn't believe that. I'd like to leave before he activates the suspended animation device. 
Kirk is now suddenly very friendly and cooperative. Yeah, yeah, he's a bad liar. <laughs> in this yeah, film. this is one where there's no, I mean, does she believe that he wasn't sabotaging the transporter? Of course, it obvious. He runs away and, you know, and, and, yeah. well, you know, he gets on the platform and it's not, like there's nothing she, you know, I guess, you know, she had plenty of time to figure out how to use a transporter while she was in accelerated time. And uh, she's trying to beam Kirk down to Scalus and it's not working. And Kirk even says it was working before. Try it again. And I'm like, wow. I mean, like suddenly he's like, yeah, why don't you try it again? It's got to be working. It, it's, a, it's a weird scene because she behaves as if she does believe him, even though there's no reason to believe him. It's very odd. I also think just things like switches and knobs, anything you touch when you're moving 10,000 miles an hour, you'd probably break, you know, like the transporter sliders are not designed to move a thousand miles an hour. Again, it's all, all part of that, you know. It's the same thing. I know. I'm sorry. Thing. No, no, no. I, uh, yeah. I get it. I think the same thing. This is why if I watch this episode late at night, I had a cocktail. I'm playing a video game on my iPhone. It was totally fine. Like, okay, whatever. But watching it for this show where I'm paying attention to every single detail, the flaws just come out all over the place. Yeah, no, listen, you know, that the, the great joy of doing this podcast with you, Steve, is that it has opened the original Star Trek to me in ways that I, I'm seeing it so differently after 50 years of dissecting and, and loving this show. But at the same time, when you get to an episode like this, that breakdown, that deep dive exposes the flaws. And, you yeah. know, we love the show. We love Absolutely. the show even when it's bad, but when it is when there are problems, we call them out because that is what we do on Enterprise Incidents. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and, and then she talks to Rael and says the transporter's not working. And then she kind of backs Kirk's play saying that he didn't do it and it's a malfunction, which I don't understand why. I'm glad we're both innocent. I despise devious people, don't you? Oh, I believe in honest relationships myself. And he's being charming. Yep. So is she making a joke out of like, I know that you did it, but we're kind of playing or is she believing that he's innocent? That's a good question. I mean, she's got to be, you know, pretty dumb if she thinks that he had nothing to do with it by this point. Doctor, did you just, I've been hearing that whine ever since we beamed down the scouts. I know what it is, but doesn't explain what he knows, which is, you know, a silly TV convention. He should have like alluded to knowing what it is. And maybe he just said to McCoy, doctor, I'll be on the bridge. Like, so that right. you know that he knows what we know, but we are not going to like, you know, sort of like blurt it out just yet. Well, you know, the example, and you brought it up several times where it's done really well is devil in the dark. Exactly. Spock is processing the thing, but isn't quite ready to say it because he's not sure of his theory yet. That's that's kind of what they're trying to do here, but it's not working very well. Right. But and that devil in the dark was written by Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn. Yeah. Good yep. point. We're in Kirk's quarters and she compliments his quarters and starts brushing her hair at the mirror where we see Kirk in the reflection, uh, which is kind of a neat shot. You're married to your career and you never look at another woman. Well, if she's pretty enough, I'll look. <laughs> so. Kirk obviously is flirting with her. This is part of his moves. It was quite delightful kissing you when you couldn't see me. But now. But now. And now they kiss. If this was a better episode, I would be wondering and looking for signs of Kirk changing. And wondering, is he under the influence of whatever this thing that happened to Compton or is he not? 
Right. And then he touches her hands and maybe is about to try to grab her weapon, which she sees and backs up. I wouldn't allow you to take that, no matter how much we trust each other. But I would have been disappointed if you hadn't tried. So she's saying, like, I know you're going to try to escape, but she still she still wants him. You know, rather than sort of like throw him back in the pool and, you know, fish somebody else out who's going to be more uh, more content to go along with it. Uh, she she has her eye on the pro. He's the prize. She that's what she wants. Well, I think one of the threads that's an interesting you know, what's part of this is, I think, is that Gene Kuhn didn't actually write this script. Right. Correct. Is that there's so many things where it's like if you massage this moment a little bit more and work on it a little bit more, it might have worked. Like one of the threads is that she's really in love with Raoul and that the Uh-oh. reason that she's attracted to Kirk is that he reminds her of Raoul, who she can't have because she can't reproduce with him. By this point, uh, even though, you know, for the like, like Spectre of the Gun, that was written by Lee Cronin, Gene Kuhn, right. uh, you know, but by this point, uh, uh, you know, Kuhn had done the outlines and, you know, he kind of had to get back into what takes a thief. And he basically said to Freiberger, okay, here's here's my story. Here's my outline. Do whatever you want with it. That's what's yeah. going on here by this point. Well, and, you know, little little piece of information for those people who don't write for a living. Execution is everything. Outlines are fine, but it's how you do it in the moment that makes the difference between really good scripts and, and less good scripts. And that's what's going on here. Exactly. Was I too crude? Just don't try it again. Far too vulnerable to skin damage. All I have to do is scratch you. Which is genuinely scary. Yeah, and he flinches. Yeah. Like even even he, like maybe for a moment, whether he it was a sincere affection or just, you know, using her. Uh by the way, does he use her? Or does he like her? That's a really good question. I don't think he likes her. I think uh based on again, twelve year old Steve was totally into her. She's beautiful. She's flirting with Kirk. Like, awesome. I don't believe that Kirk, a reasonable person, could actually be attracted to this woman who took over his ship and is, you know, like, there's real problems here, you know? But what about, like, in Conscience of the King? You know, he initially started to woo Lenore Caridian. He was using her because he was trying to get information about her father. And somewhere along the way, he really grew to care for her because yes. there's that last line where McCoy says, you really cared for her, didn't you? And he just says, I have work factor one, Mr. Leslie. And he goes, that's an answer. So do I think that Kirk cared for Dila at the same level that he cared? He grew to care for Lenore? No, but I think he did care for her to an extent because of just the sort of goodbye he gives at the very end of the episode. I think Kirk is a caring person. You know what I mean? And I, and, yeah. but, but, but Conscious of the King's a perfect example. First of all, Kirk doesn't know that she's the bad guy at the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. He suspects that maybe she's, but he, but really, Kirk suspects that her dad is the bad guy. Correct. Yeah. Not he, that he she is the bad guy. He doesn't think that Lenore has anything to do with this until yeah. she, you know, sort of pulls her Lady Macbeth uh, pose and, yeah. you know. And, and she is a very charming person who is flirting at his level and they flirt back and forth. Like, that's all moments where you go, of course he's attracted to her. We, Dila shows up and says, I'm the enemy. He knows she's the bad guy. He knows that she's she and her people are responsible for Compton's death and will probably kill everybody on the ship. Like, and she's a little, you know, Lenore Caridian ends up being crazy at the end. 
Dila is actually kind of crazy from the beginning, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she um, is. She's a little cuckoo for Cocoa Pups. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're back on the bridge. Spock asked to replay the Sklosian stress call. And I should have pointed out when they replayed it the first time on the bridge, it started off a little bit slow. That's something we've never seen happen anywhere on Star Trek, but it's a nice little plant to get our brains thinking about speed. I think that's, you're right. It's a really good plant for this episode that is going to deal with speed. And then when he plays it, he actually like turns the knob the wrong way first, slowing it down rather than speeding it up. We have no explanation for what has been happening to us. I think all that is a good choice. And we hear it speed up faster and faster until it just dissolves into that buzzing sound we'd heard from the beginning. There is insect life. I don't know how they had video of this, but they the video on Scalus by the fountain. Right. And Kirk actually says a line that's different on the tape than oh. he does in the beginning of the teaser. Because in the beginning of the teaser, he goes, it registers on my ears. In this Clearly, it's a different take. Uh, Kirk goes, uh, uh, my ears it's registering on. Like So mm. uh, they tried it two different ways, two different angles, and the dialogue didn't match. But still, it's still a good effect to see the way that Spock is matching and confirming yep. that the buzzing is of, of the speeded up Skolosians is actually matching the buzzing they've been hearing. McCoy to Spock. Spock here. I found a tape in the computer down here. And when I try to read it, all I get is a whine. Bring it to the bridge at once, Doctor. One thing I could say is that I think since the Tholian web, McCoy and Spock's relationship seems to be working really well with Spock in command and Kirk gone. Correct. That is definitely a great observation. I felt the same way. In fact, uh, for the rest of the series, we don't have any situations where Kirk is missing or and Spock is in command and McCoy is arguing with Spock. We have a situation where Kirk and McCoy are missing in the Savage Curtain uh, or so rather that that which survives where, um, you know, Spock and Scotty are maybe kind of, you know, at, at odds a little. But you're right. Ever since the Tholian web, they've been getting along much better. And now we're on the bridge. We're actually watching Kirk's tape. Don't know how to destroy it, but its destruction is imperative. The unit will be activated by the time they hear this. What I like about the scene is... Everyone on the bridge is listening and camera pans from person to person. And I mean, look, on one hand, Captain Kirk is still alive. On the other hand, they are hearing what's going on and they're a little scared. Can we use phasers to cut through that wall, bypass the force field and get at that unit? Mr. Scott, we cannot cope with them on our level. Can we find some way of coping with them on theirs? That is a logical suggestion. (laughs) That's cool. That's good. Uh, we're back in the transporter room. Uh, Ryle's there, and Scotty is f- standing frozen at the door. And I'm going like, how much time in accelerated time did it take for Scotty to get from the bridge where he just was down to the transporter room? Probably was like a week. His transpired. I would say could have been a, could have been longer than that. <laughs> Who knows? Dila, no answer. Dila, no answer. He's getting frustrated. Dila. Heads out of the transporter room, and we cut to Kirk's quarters, and Captain Kirk is pulling on his boots. Now, how many times have you and I speculated a moment where, let's say, in Space Seed, after Khan kisses MacGyver's, and then you cut to the dinner scene, 
you know, did did they consummate their relationship? And we say, yeah, they they probably did. There are there are subtle moments, subtle things yeah. where we where we go, yeah, I think I think they did have sex. Or or the scene in Bread and Circuses where the the woman, yeah. you know, says, I'm, you know, uh here to please you. And yeah. you know, like did they have sex? Well, you know, Kirk is still wearing all his clothes and so we're like, maybe they didn't, but they fooled around. I don't know. In this scene, in this moment, this is a very risque scene for 1968 broadcast. The, the censors must have been asleep at the wheel on this one. But Kirk is putting on his boot and she is brushing her hair in the mirror. There is absolutely no question at all. Yep. They just had sex. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And this is where, you know, your question before about does he like her and comparing it to Conscience of the King, this is where I, it's just, I don't know why. Because in in Conscience of the King, he is trying to get information. In What Are Little Girls Made Of? He's trying to mess up the android by being sexual with her. Right. In, in By Any Other Name, he is messing with her to make her feel all these emotions and to create conflict with the other guy. Right. It's really. There is no reason that he is seducing her at this moment. The only reason that I can think of is that he just wants her to think that he has given in because she said when she first met him on the bridge, they always resist at first, but then they accept the situation. So this, if, if nothing else, this is, is the way that Kirk just sort of proves once and for all to her that he has given in and and because they did just consummate their relationship that there should be no doubt on her end so that she trusts him completely making it easier for him to you know snag that weapon when he needs it i think that is a totally reasonable explanation i don't think it's particularly in the episode yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. Because he doesn't in the, we don't see him in this moment acting like the stuff has taken over. We're going to see it in a few minutes. Yep. Him, him acting like that. Uh, but in just in case you were wondering, Steve, uh, the Kirk putting on his boot moment happened on day six of production of this episode. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but he's pulling on, on his boots and in comes Real, who immediately attacks Kirk who tries to block with a pillow. And it is scary because one little scratch is going to kill him. Right. And then we see her at the very last shot as Rayal is moving in on Kirk, draw her weapon. And again, I'm going to say, this doesn't feel like this was an act break. There's a weird fade out in mid action, which is not normally a thing you would do. Well, this is like one of the only real action scenes in the yeah. whole episode. Uh, so that was the end of act three. We come back in act four, the exact same spot. She stuns him. He drops his weapon, but he doesn't go down. Still about to attack Kirk. She stuns him again. And now finally he stops. Don't you dare do anything like that again. It's contemptible. And don't torment me. You know how I feel. So clearly he's in love with her. Um, and on some level, she has feelings for him, we think. But she says, I don't care what your feelings are. I don't want to know that aspect of it. What I do is necessary, and you have no right to question it. Allow me the dignity of liking the man I select. It's a good line. Yeah. She dismisses him, essentially. He takes one last look at Kirk and heads out. Kirk puts down the chair, walks towards her, and now it is exactly the thing you're talking about. In every bit of his physicality, you see that he has changed. I must say you behaved better than he did. I hope so. What did you say? Should I? 
I hoped I behaved correctly. He, almost like he's cast under a spell. He's not yeah. acting Kirk at all. But we are going to Scalus. Do you want to? Oh, yes. What about your crew? Aren't you worried about them? They'll be all right. Now, do you think if you were watching this in 1968 or 69, I guess, do you think that you would have suspected that Kirk was faking it or would you have been persuaded that he was not for one minute, even as a very young age, did I ever feel that Kirk was really under her spell? I always felt like, no, for sure. He's using her. It would be interesting because this is, it it would be interesting and not interesting. I would say not interesting because we've done this a bunch of times before, like in dagger of the mind, like in a private little war where Kirk was somehow convinced to be in love with someone and then had to overcome it. But it still would be more interesting if we saw some kind of internal struggle going on rather than him just pretending that he's totally in her sway. You right. know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rayo, you don't have to worry about the captain. He's made the adjustment. Back in the lab, they've figured out a counter agent to the Scalosian water. But the question is, will it work in the human body? And the second question is, how do we get it to the captain? By drinking the Scalosian water. Which he does. He doesn't even like like pause or 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 give McCoy a moment. He just like drinks it immediately. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is, you know, dramatic, but also maybe you should have said, Hey Scotty, I'm gonna do this thing. You try to do this thing. McCoy, you work on this. And like to actually tell people the plan would have been maybe a better thing to do. But it is a dramatic moment. And I love how they handle Spock's transition. It is somewhat stimulating. And then the camera tilts into that Dutch angle. Yep. You seem to be moving very slowly, Doctor. The way the camera tilts is what happened when Kirk started yep. to accelerate in uh, on the bridge in the beginning or in the middle of the first act. And I think that's a great choice. And then Spock is gone. And I like how we go back into regular speed as they react to Spock's disappearance. But, but when I'm re-watching this episode, I'm watching Frozen DeForest yes. Kelly – yeah. Uh, watching his eyes follow yep. Spock out of the frame. So yep. they could have done another take with that, I think. Well, or done it or done it as a split frame. They could have frozen McCoy and Chapel on a split frame rather than having them pretend to be frozen, which right. is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I've beamed the others down. Is it repaired already? Why didn't you tell me? And Brayal has made a change. It would have been an intrusion. Come up when you wish. Signal me when you are ready. He's saying, I wanted to give you time to have sex with the guy that I'm super jealous of, and I'm going to totally respect that from now on. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I think is cool. Real wait. I'm sorry. And he, almost Han Solo-y, says, I know. Yeah, totally. You think uh, there's a correlation there? You think uh, maybe Kazdan saw Wink of an Eye and said, I like that line? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Very possible. We're in the transporter room. Kirk is entering with Dila. Uh, we hear that the unit is being activated. Your crew will be all right. You said so yourself. And now, when she's finally lulled into a false sense of security, he grabs her wrist and takes the weapon away. He's broken away. He's armed. I'm ready for him. And Kirk is back. <laughs> yeah. And we see Spock moving through the corridor. Kirk runs up, sees his first officer, is now up, accelerated at his speed, and just smiles at him. I love that. That's yeah. such a great moment. There's, like, no dialogue between them. Yeah. Like the look on Kirk's face 
that smile of relief of like, if there is one person I need right now, it's Mr. Spock and here he is. But what's great about it is that there's no dialogue between them. They go into environmental control and rails trying to defend the device and Kirk fires at rail and then he fires at the device which uh, explodes and that's the end of that but I just love how Kirk and Spock by this point they are such a rhythm such a connection they don't have to say anything to each other you are very clever captain you tricked me I should have known that you would never adjust question and I think I already know what your answer will be was Kirk feeling the effects and the adjustment coming that he fought off or was he never feeling the effects and never feeling it at all that's because what I think too. The reason is because when he did take the device, the the weapon from her from her wrist, he was right back to being our captain, be yeah. right back to defending his ship, doing whatever it takes to save the Enterprise. I don't think for a moment that he was ready to give in. This was all this was all a ploy to get her to trust him so that he could, you know, take the weapon and save the ship. Well, and this goes to like, well, why, if that's the case, which I agree, I think that's exactly, I think there was never a moment where he was really uh, feeling the power. Why have this whole plot line at all? Like it has no effect on the story. Like you introduce this idea that you're going to be, you know, you're going to first stop caring about the enterprise, but then that never happens. So why have it? <laughs> if I sent you back to Scalus, you'd undoubtedly play the same trick on the next spaceship that passed by. There won't be any others. You'll warn them. Your Federation will quarantine the entire area. Yes, I suppose it would. And we will die and solve your problem that way. And ours. I have a question. So Spock is carrying basically a vaccine or a uh, an antidote to the accelerated right. accelerated motion. Yeah. Why don't they offer to help the Skolosians? Why don't they offer them, say, hey, I think we found a cure. We're going to try it on ourselves right now. And if it works, you can have it and, you know, you can repopulate your planet and everything will be hunky-dory. Like at the end of By Any Other Name, when Kirk is fighting with Rojan, Kirk says, it's not too late. You know, you could still take one of these planets. And Rojan says, you would do that? You would help invaders? And Kirk says, no, but we would help. We would welcome friends. And they're just like, yep, yeah, bye. We're just going to let you, you know, good luck. Good luck with everything. You know, we're just going to stay behind on the Enterprise here and making no motion at all that they've got this this antidote. I just never understood why they didn't like say, here, here's the antidote. Beam down with this. Give it a whirl. If it works great, you know, we're, we're out of here. And yes, we are going to quarantine the area. So to, to be clear, this whole civilization is now going to die. Is that correct? That's Yeah. I mean, this is such a There's bizarre. There's only five left. There's only five left. They're in accelerated time, and they went from nine hundred thousand people to five in, yeah. you know, presumably a short period of time. There's, there's no way that they're going to be able to survive under the circumstance. Well, they this is what, can't recreate, reproduce. Well, and this is why don't introduce a problem that you're not going to solve or even deal with. Like it, it, to deal with it. Let's say we say, let's say we decide we can't solve this problem, right? Which isn't a very Star Trek thing. But let's say we decide that. Then the last moment should be. We've just condemned this civilization to its death. You know, like it should be somber. Like her beaming down should be, she should say, we're all going to die, you know, and, and deal with the emotion of that. But we don't deal with it at all. 
I completely agree with you. By the way, Spock hasn't told Kirk that we have the antidote as far as we know. So Kirk doesn't know there's any way for them to get back to the Enterprise. You could still find life on Scalus. Very pleasant. Very brief. It'll be just as brief here. You cannot get back to your own level. And Kirk looks at Spock and Spock just kind of like just gives him a slight look and a slight nod yes. as if to say, I think I have a solution here. I think that's what happens too, but they don't really make any of it, anything of the moment. If Kirk was undecided about what to do and then looked over at Spock and got the nod and then made a decision based on the information he just got from Spock that we do have an antidote, well, then that would be cool. But it, because they don't do that, it's exactly the problem you described. Now, I do think it wouldn't make any sense for both Kirk and Spock to take the antidote in front of Dila because then Dila would kill them all because she's a million times faster. But saying, but coming up with some kind of plan rather than letting the civilization die is, and the idea, we don't know if the antidote could work on the Scalosians or not, but like, obviously they should be dealing with that. Uh, well, but, yeah, but what we don't know is that the antidote, is if the antidote won't work on the Scalosians. Like, right. like, you know, there could have been something well because of the, the anatomy of the Scalosians, the anatomy of, uh, you know, the Enterprise crew, it'll work for the Enterprise crew, including a Vulcan but it won't work for the Scalosians. Like, you know, maybe there was, you know, but maybe it could have been uh, just like any vaccine. You know, they, they keep trying things until it works. But Kirk and Spock are very quick to basically write off the last five surviving members of a once thriving civilization. Okay, how about this? Yes. So we are deciding what to do with the Scalosians and this idea, and make it clear, if we beam you down and quarantine the area, your civilization will die out. You know, that's the decision we're making. And then Spock starts to tell Kirk, actually, we have an antidote. And Kirk silences him and like gives him a look like, no, no, no. And then Kirk does say, look, to protect the Federation, I'm sorry about what's going to happen to Scalos and your people. We have no choice. We're beaming you down. And she's mad at him and says, how do you, you, you condemned us all to death. How dare you? I thought you were compassionate. And Maybe their looks from Spock going, what the hell are you doing? And Kirk goes, energized. They beam him down. And then he says to Spock, we could not tell her about the antidote while she was on board our ship. It would be too dangerous. And then he calls down to her and tells her, we have the antidote and we will we will transport it to you. There, there, That's great. There is definitely a way that that Kirk should have shown more compassion to the Scalosians. And if, let's say, Gene Kuhn or Roddenberry or Dorothy Fontana were still actively involved with Star Trek, I don't think this episode would have ended the way it did. Because at this point, even Jerry Finnerman is gone. None of the creative forces that made Star Trek what it was, that really defined the spirit of Star Trek, are still working on the show. They're all gone. So, yeah. so nobody is, is going to say, Hey, you know, this, this is way out of character for Kirk and for Spock to just let the Scalosians go like this and just let yeah. them die, let them die. This yeah. is way out of character for them. And I think that's the problem I have with the second half of season three is that there are certain episodes where I feel like Kirk acts so far out of character that it ruins the episode for me. I'm specifically thinking of Requiem for Methuselah, but 
This, oh, yeah. This oh. Kirk, yeah, I mean, that's an awful episode. But this version of Kirk that we are seeing now is is not is not the Kirk that we know from 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 Charlie X and and from by any other name and and so on and so on, where where despite everything, he extends a helping hand, showing compassion. This is not compassion. You know, I, I have a theory, and I'll try to say it super quick. There's a whole bunch of like uh, movie series that are very popular, in which if you actually count the number of really good movies in that series, it's pretty small. You know, there's there's tons of objections to many of the Star Wars movies, and yet it is it absolutely beloved? James Bond, I think, has largely terrible movies, mm-hmm. and yet it is a beloved series. And I think part of what happens is that the great movies earn your love through the bad ones. Is that if there had been no mirror, mirror, metamorphosis, balance of terror, we wouldn't be talking about, we would hate this episode. It's, you know what I mean? And we, and we, we certainly wouldn't be having this conversation now. Is that our love for Captain Kirk that's established in those episodes carries us through episodes where he behaves really out of character. I you know? agree 100%. And it's not just that, that those moments uh, carry us through the moments that, that where he behaves out of character. It's that all those great episodes that you mentioned, and there are so many more that, uh, that of course we've covered that when it, when it comes to those moments in those episodes that are not very good, where Kirk acts out of character, it's like, I don't even watch him. (laughs) You know, I have a choice to, you know, not watch it on my Blu-ray or not watch it when I'm streaming it on Paramount Plus. I just skip over it. I just watch the episodes that I like or I love. But what I will say to your point is that for a series that was on for three years and had 80 episodes, if you include The Cage, the batting average for the original series is really, really, really high. There are so many good to great episodes uh, over the ones that are that are not very good, that that is what makes me cut these lesser episodes some slack. Is because there's so much greatness. The show is the show is defined by consistent greatness so many times that the moments whether they are not great or the characters act out of character, uh, I just go well. You know they were on their way down. They were winding down. The series was dying. The creative forces left. They had one foot out the door. They were in a rush, just trying to wrap it up. And more than anything, that explains why certain characters act out of character, like the we'll, we'll see from this point forward more often than we did in the first half of season three. Well, and you commented on Nimoy's performance at the very beginning. I think this is a part of it. I mean, if Nimoy is, I'm not saying he's phoning it in. But if he's not putting in the energy, you know, I think he's got one foot out the door, too. You well, know? also, it's, it's funny you mentioned Nimoy because Gene Roddenberry uh, in that memo that I, I read, I read yeah. to you where he was saying, do we have to have humans as aliens every time? He also commented on Nimoy's delivery, which he felt was way too slow. And mm-hmm. if you if you watch Nimoy's performance as Spock in certainly the maybe the midpoint of season three onwards and compare him to his performance as Spock in seasons one and season two, he does seem uh, like he's talking lower and slower. Mm. He's not as expressive. He's not as expressive as he was in those first Mm. two seasons. And Mm -hmm. Roddenberry noticed this. Uh, It makes sense. Um, So 
Spock tells Kirk that we have a possible antidote and that they didn't have a chance to test it. And Kirk goes, let's test it. And he drinks the whole thing. I would think he would ask, like, how much of this do I take? And do I, you know what I mean? Like, maybe rather than just chugging it, but he does. And he says, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. You do seem to be moving very slowly, Captain. Spock. Yeah, that's great. It's a great yeah. moment. I like and it. And then he's back and Scotty reacts to his appearance. We head up to the bridge. We hear the log that Spock has remained accelerated so he can do the repairs more rapidly, um, which he didn't actually say to Spock. They didn't have a conversation that Spock was going to do that, but that is what he's doing. And he is repairing the whole ship and everything's coming back online. The ship will resume normal operations almost immediately. And then suddenly there's Spock. Mr. Spock, my compliments to your repair work and yourself. Thank you, Kev. I found it an accelerating experience. Wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, what's so funny is that Kirk says, Yes. Like Kirk reacts to Spock's bad joke as if it was a bad joke. Right. And then that distress video pops up on the screen. <gasps> I'm sorry, sir. I touched the tape button accidentally. I'll take it off. That's no malfunction. No, sir. But strangely enough, it's all zoomed in on Dila. Like, how? why is it zoomed in on Dila? We never saw that in, in the tape before. Right. Like, was, I, was there more to the message that they saw uh, earlier on in the episode? But anyway, the... Or more likely, the they said, we, the, we need a Kirk moment. Let's show images of Dila. Right, right. Exactly. You know? Well, the, the image on the view screen is of Dila. And the way that Kirk says, goodbye, Dila makes me think that, yeah, he definitely did care about her, not to the extent that he cared about Lenore, um, and certainly more than he cared about Sylvia and Catsfall, um, yeah. someone else that he used. But uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a tender goodbye. I think he cared about her. It's a tender goodbye to a relationship I'm not invested on in at all. Correct. Correct. But that does bring us to the end of Wink of an Eye, and worth noting that there was an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Blink of an Eye that was also about a people who lived time at an accelerated rate. But originally, that episode of Voyager was called Wink of an Eye. And someone said, wait a minute, <laughs> we have an episode of TOS, the original series that is called Wink of an Eye. So they changed it to Blink of an Eye. Um, I find it interesting that in our last two episodes, we have discovered a way to give the crew of the Enterprise superpowers. In Plato's Stepchildren, we have just do an injection and suddenly you have crazy telekinetic powers. And in this episode, you take a sip of water and now you're super fast. And we will never, ever mention any of these things again. <laughs> exactly. Especially the telekinetic, the psychokinetic power from yeah. Plato's stepchildren. Um, did people have anything interesting to say about this episode? Well, Fred Freiberger, the producer of the third season, said about Gene Kuhn, he said, Gene Kuhn was a lovely, talented guy who came up with certain stories and said, do what you want with them. He worked as much as he could with us, and he was a complete gentleman and completely professional about the whole thing. The teleplay writer, Arthur Heinemann, said, I really loved Star Trek. It was a great team, and the chemistry was wonderful. Wake of an Eye is my favorite of the three that I wrote. Uh, I will attest to that. It is the best of the three that he wrote. Uh, and Heinemann also said that director Judd Taylor asked me many questions about the people in the script, what they felt, what they thought what they were like, he got the actors to project exactly what I had in mind. 
So I have a very odd final thought for this episode. I think I've told you and maybe some of the listeners know that I tend to listen to books and podcasts obsessively, and I usually listen to them at two, two and a half times, sometimes even up to three times speed. How do you do that? It's just practice, I think. And well, actually, and I edit tend to edit this show at two times speed. Um, you know, wow. it's just well, and this is the thing. One of the advantages of listening to things really fast is that you might be able to get through things a little bit quicker that you wouldn't listen to otherwise. And I think that Wink of an Eye would be a great show for me to listen at two and a half times speed and get through <laughs> it in about 15 or 20 minutes. And if I did that, I'd probably be like, that yeah, was fine. <laughs> but this is not a show that that warrants going slowly and carefully moment by moment, because every single moment you examine has the potential at least to make the show worse. And so if you want to just have, watch it in the background and you love the characters, you love some Star Trek and you see a beautiful woman in a beautiful outfit and you see a couple of cool Star trek moments, great. But I, my advice to you is to not watch it as carefully as we watched it for this show. Uh, I will second that motion to not watch it as carefully as we had to do for this deep dive conversation. Having said that, if you watch it, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, <laughs> leave your brain at the door and just take it for what it is, for what it is and suspend your disbelief, I think it's actually a fun and entertaining episode. The speeding up stuff, the slowing down stuff, the tilted camera, the chemistry between uh, Kathy Brown and William Shatner is really, really good. As long as you don't scrutinize it and you just go with it, that episode does actually have its merits. I think it's fun, but I think it is a hard episode to watch when you are doing what we're doing uh, every voyage on Enterprise Incidents. Uh, so to the extent that this conversation, we we talked greatly about the flaws of the episode, it does bring it down a notch for me. But at the same time, I do have to confess that that there are certain episodes that I occasionally go back to rewatch from time to time. And this is actually one of them because maybe I will have it on in the background while I'm doing other things, but just because I like to hear the voices and the music and the sound of the bridge, it's comforting in that way. And that is why I, I am cutting this episode a ton of slack. Uh, despite the flaws, I, I do enjoy it uh, as long as I'm not thinking too hardly about it. So that's what we think of Wink of an Eye. We'd love to hear what you think. We think that you should hurry, go as fast as you can to social media and leave your comments there. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at Enter Incidents, at Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play or YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're there, check out the show notes. Right at the top of the show notes is a link where you can support the show on Anchor for as little as 99 cents a month or as much as 9.99 a month. Or you could get multiple accounts and support us multiple times. We would not be upset about that in the least. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And since you mentioned a Kung Fu movie that we haven't done on the cinephiles, I'll tell you about a couple of Kung Fu movies we have done, like, <laughs> like Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and Return of the Dragon, Jackie Chan's Drunken Master, Drunken Master 2, and Police Force, and of course, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. So if you want to watch some kung fu films, you could do it on the cinephiles. Scott, 
How would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And you can also catch me on the Enterprise Incidents Facebook page, where I am always engaging with our fellow enterprisers, our supporters of Enterprise Incidents. That's where I post all the news about our next show, who our guests are going to be, and so on. So if you haven't already done so, please go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and follow our Facebook page. And make sure you share this episode of Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so more people can discover Enterprise Incidents, even though we are more than halfway through the third season, which is hard to believe. And we got some conquerors coming up. We still got a couple of good ones left as well. Please share Enterprise Incidents so more people can discover and and join us on what's left of our voyage of the original series. In the meantime, we have a good one coming up next on Enterprise Incidents. And this, uh, well, well, uh, maybe one of us thinks it's a good, good episode. <laughs> I saw that. You have had a facial expression go by on that one. I caught that big time, my friend. Uh, I always liked that which survives. And you can tell us if you like it too by joining us on the next voyage of Enterprise Incidents. Until then... Keep going boldly.